0: Welcome to five thousand to one, the Athletics Leicester City podcast. I'm Rob Tanner. Joining me, as usual, is Leicester City legend and former captain
1: Matt Elliott. Matt, how you doing? I'm okay, Rob. Grinding on, grinding on is probably as good as it gets at the moment. But um, hanging in there, yeah, hanging in there. And yeah, what about yourself, mate? Are you coping okay? Yeah, we're ticking along trying to produce
0: some uh, content for our athletic readers and trying to find out what's happening at Leicester City but a fair bit's still happening around the game at the moment. I know there's no, no action on the pitch and we don't know when that action is going to start again. I suppose there's a little uh, chink of light at the end of the tunnel with some of the Bundesliga sides returning to some level of training themselves. We still don't know when the Premier League will come back, but there's been quite a lot going on since um, our last podcast uh, regarding the Premier League and we, I know we touched on last time the uh, the possibility of players taking a pay cut and furloughing of staff, and it's certainly accelerated over the last week, uh, Matt, but the Premier League issuing a statement after a meeting last Friday uh, calling for the players to take a 30% pay cut, offering £125 million pound advance to the other football league um, clubs to help them in this precarious situation, and also the uh, £20 million pound gift to the NHS. But since then... The PFA responded and basically rejected the proposal for a pay cut and uh, they made several arguments themselves about um, where would this money be going? The players want some sort of guarantee that The money that they will be uh, foregoing would uh, not just go straight back into the club's coffers. And I think there's a lot of talk about them doing something independently. Going down the the football pyramid to protect clubs and jobs in lower league um, clubs. It's been a crazy time. I don't know if you've been keeping track of that, Matt. But it doesn't seem, it it really does look ugly and it's not black and white. And it does seem that uh, it's tarnishing the image of the game with many supporters who are facing tough times themselves.
1: Yeah, very detailed and complex. But uh, the Premier League and the football clubs themselves, they're trying to address the situation as best as possible. I think, without doubt, football gets labelled rather quickly, uh, rather too quickly in, in most cases, you know, for the negative aspects of uh, in this situation. And just generally, really, because they are the highest profile sport, uh, they're an easy target. But, you know... Other other industries need to play the part as well. And I think, you know, it's easy to say that the amount of money that's flying around in the Premier League, uh, it needs to be utilised. And it does, it does. But it needs to be done in a measured, balanced way as well. Professional footballers, they earn you know, exceptionally high levels of salary, but they also pay very high levels and amounts of tax. You know, there is so indirectly, there, there is money being put in, you know, from the club's, to help benefit the causes and other causes in, in general in that context. But I think each club has its own situation, doesn't it? And some clubs will be run more astutely than others. And there is a lot of money flying around, but sometimes teams or clubs live to their means to to an extent. They try and compete with the others around it. Outgoings are exceptionally high. and I don't know, but people didn't expect this situation to come. So there might not be uh, as much spare funds as people imagine. But um, I think, think by and large, the clubs will try and do the right thing. Although there have to be questions raised, you know, with Spurs, Newcastle, Bournemouth, Norwich, etc. Put the the non-playing staff into a furlough situation. You think, how can that be? Can the players help? internally within the club and I'm sure the majority of them as we mentioned last week would be more than happy to do so perhaps it should have happened a little bit earlier but the fact that they're actively trying to find some sort of assistance um, in in the current situation is uh, you know I think it's testament to to the people involved really and I think uh, you know I think that football clubs can spin this round a little bit and turn a negative into a positive
0: well, you're right to point out about the uh, the amount of money in the game because there's the perception that because there's billions in TV rights money that goes into the Premier League, it is the richest league in the world. That all that money stays in the in the, in the clubs. But Matt Slater, my colleague at the Athletic, has done a fascinating piece um, looking at the state of the finances um, in the Premier League, and it is quite dramatic, really. That uh, you know some of the uh, the money that it seems to just go th- straight through the clubs. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash 5000 and pay the postage of just £4.95. And, as if that wasn't enough, as a listener to 5000 to 1, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time, so the power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack it's thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash 5000 to get your free beer. And don't forget right now, listeners, to 5000 to 1, get two extra free beers in one end and out the other uh, like a dose of salts. um, and he starts with his uh, fascinating piece uh, quoting famed investor Warren Buffett who said it was only when the tide goes out that you learn who has been swimming naked and the gravity of the (laughs) coronavirus pandemic has dragged football's tide way out beyond the pier forcing lots of embarrassed bathers to scurry back to their beach huts and it's quite a good analogy because some of the money that comes into the clubs is quite frightening but as you say to compete they have to spend it and they've been spending it um, on players on the wages and on their staff as well to make them competitive on the pitch and that's certainly been the case Leicester City have recorded um, profits in previous seasons but the last accounts they uh, recorded a loss of £20 million, which was down to the increased spending on player recruitment and also bringing in Brendan Rodgers from Celtic and his backroom staff and that's why they made a loss this year but some of the figures are quite frightening for the state of some of the, um, the clubs I think the there's only about seven clubs that have actually made a profit in the last uh, uh, accounts, and when you look at Chelsea and Everton, they've recorded losses of over a hundred million. So club, there might be a lot of money in the Premier League, but it's not staying in the Premier League coffers. It's being spent. It's being passed about.
1: Yeah, it's a good example as you say a very relevant analogy at this this time, isn't it? And I mean, you look at it. This is what it, it how it operates, though. How the Premier League is. I mean, it's so competitive. You would think the rewards would be you know, sufficient enough for people to be able to deal with even an unforeseen scenario that that we're experiencing right now. But to run a football club, you know, there's so many expenses, aren't there? You know, like you say, primarily, I suppose, that the playing staff, uh, you know, the wages that they earn are incredible these days, but, you know, supply and demand and all that and the clubs speculate to accumulate and the amount of clubs that are are actually running at a loss. You know, it seems unfathomable, really. <laughs> you think, how does that happen? But to compete with with, with the, the neighbours and those, are, in Leicester City's case, to compete with clubs, you know, supposedly deemed more powerful and r- richer and more esteemed, is, it, you know, it, it costs bucks. And, um, you know, you're seeing the evidence of that. It, it's certainly, a, you know, a warning for down the line. That's for sure. You know, in, in future... Clubs need to be a little bit tidier with their, their finances. They've been forewarned, I suppose, in terms of future reference, but it's dealing with the here and now that's important.
0: Well, one of the big issues at the moment, Matt, is uh, the furloughing of non-playing staff. Um, totally understandable in the uh, Football League, certainly further down as uh, clubs basically go into hibernation until football can return. Um, but it's the number of Premier League clubs that are furloughing non-playing Uh, playing staff which has been the controversial aspect of it or I mean most businesses are furloughing at some stage or in some degree Um, but uh, that list I mentioned about the the clubs that have made profits and the ones that made loss the clubs that have furloughed or announced furloughing and I know Liverpool have gone back on it but Liverpool, Tottenham and Newcastle in this this list of the clubs that made the most profit Tottenham are top with 87 million Liverpool a second with forty one point nine million profit. Newcastle a fourth with twenty three million. These are the clubs that are making the most profit.
1: Well, perhaps that's an indication of why they're making so much profit. They're very shrewdly run mm-hmm. as a as a business investment, aren't they? But um, it, it goes against the grain, doesn't it? Um, without a doubt, and I think fair play to. Liverpool for, for turning things around initially making the decision to, to furlough the non-playing staff um, under a bit of pressure from their own supporters people who've been connected with the club past and present that to me is where a cut from the players' wages um, or deferral at the very least of, of some form or another could be applied to to help out the, the non-playing staff at the football club so that that was... The way I comprehended that things would work if the players you know, were to, to take a stance or make a move, you know, they would want to look after their own as such, first and foremost, help the people at the club who, who they mix with day to day. And I think, I think you'll find that the vast majority of footballers would be more than agreeable to do that. So you know, surely there, there's a scenario that can be worked out internally within the club, You know, with the hierarchy, the players, and the non-playing staff can be benefited in that way in the short term at least.
0: Well I'm sure there'll be more developments with this over the coming weeks as we still have the uncertainty of when football will return but let's turn to more light-hearted matters matter the lads have still been uh, training in isolation getting themselves ready for when they can return to the training ground and uh, noticed on Christian Fuchs' social media feeds the uh, strange ways he's been going about keeping fit at his family home he's been lifting his children he's been and running around with garden <laughs> furniture above his head and going up and down steps, it's like something out of a Rocky movie. Um, he's really trying his best to do uh, come up with some inventive ways of staying in shape. Uh, have you ever come across any strange training regimes in your playing days, Matt?
1: Well, uh, yeah, he's, he's a little bit quirky, isn't he, Christian? And uh, he's a great lad, and he's always trying to. Right in the mood isn't he In race spirits and that's what he's, he's been uh, been doing with his little social media posts uh he's, he's fortunate in position to to have a garden and, and have the equipment within the garden uh to use <laughs> yeah, he's making the most of, of a tough situation isn't he uh, as is everyone else but uh, uh in, my, in my times before i try to wrap my brains of Particular programs, and we, we we just had personal stuff in the summer that we were uh, meant to stick to. You know, that's sort of a, a basic form of what the players have these days. But I, I do remember having a personal program way back in my my early days um, when I was at Torquay. My <laughs> in my youth, I, I got signed from non-league to Charlton, who were then in the top league, uh, Division One. Then I got uh, loaned out, rather swiftly to Torquay United went to Torquay United did pretty well in in the first my first spell there um we got to a Sherpa van final against Wolves play at Wembley and uh against Bolton in the final and finished the season delighted to be playing professional football got paid and uh, I couldn't believe it I was getting paid to play the game I love and uh so I went back home from Torquay to Epsom where I was brought up and Enjoyed myself a little bit, shall we say. I finished the season <laughs> 14 stone five. I came back six weeks later, 15 stone nine. The manager was not very happy at all. Old Cyril Knowles. You remember him from the, Yeah uh, Tottenham Hotspur? Nice one, Cyril. The song used to go about him. And uh, he, he was fuming. And uh, I spent all that summer uh, on my own personal programme regime. But I just... I had... Like the uh, scuba diving, three quarter length trunks on, the, sort of close to the skin, the first form of Under Armour, shall we say. On top of that, I used to wear like a, a nylon, puffy, nappy type <laughs> uh, <laughs> garment that would bring extra sweat as well. Then on top of that, a tracksuit bottoms. Then I'd have a t shirt, a, a bin bag on top of me, on top, and a sweat top running around in 75, 80 degrees heat. Uh, all pre-season on a diet of salad and, and <laughs> a little bit of pasta in the evening. That was it. And uh, they were trying to like, force diet me and basically shed the pounds uh, quicker than I should have. So I ended up playing a game in pre-season and I started off centre-forward. I thought, why is he showing me at centre-forward? And it was just so I made sure I ran around. Twenty minutes. I Had no energy whatsoever. Effectively collapsed and passed out and got stretchered off. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was uh, it was my own fault because I caused all my own problems. Overindulged. I was. I couldn't believe that I'd become a professional footballer really. And we went back to my mates in in Epsom and uh, uh, overindulged, shall we say, to the to the to the extreme. But uh, yeah, little bits and pieces like that. And I also did similar. <laughs> About um, a couple of years later when I actually ended up leaving Torquay to go to Scunthorpe, And I went to Scunthorpe on loan for the back end of the season. And it did quite well. Again, we ended up getting to a playoff final at Wembley. Unfortunately, lost to Blackpool on penalties. And then subsequently, Scunthorpe wanted me to go and sign in the summer. And uh, apparently they were having a whip round, right, between the fans to raise the money. £50,000 it was going to cost, which was a club record, I believe, at the time. So I was happy to move. And then I, I realised I was, I was going up north. So I spent all the summer saying goodbye to my friends at Torquay that I got to know for over the two, three years that I was there. Safe to say I didn't look after myself properly. Turned up for the first day training and we went on a big run around the park and bill green who was the manager at the time set us off went trundling around it was only about three four miles after two miles i was about 500 yards behind the goalkeepers it was boiling hot <laughs> and i looked around and i thought i can't do this i'm not prepared for this i need to ease my way in and i pretended to keel over and crashed out underneath a tree <laughs> And the next thing i know i was lying there waiting for one of the physios to pick me up or something the manager comes along Elliot, what are you doing? I just thought sort of one eye open. And says, oh, I've collapsed. Oh, sorry, if I passed out, passed out. Come on, son, up you get with me. So plodded round, finished the run about 10 minutes after everyone else. And from that day on, I, I just had to run constantly because we used to run in the woods. It was pretty primitive and basic back then. But we would do like an eight minute run and a minute's rest and then a 10-minute run and two minutes rest. Well, the eight-minute run took me nine minutes, so the time I finished, it was time to go again. And I just constantly plodded through the woods for the next two, three weeks, trying to gain some sort of fitness, but it uh, didn't quite work. It wasn't orthodox, that's for sure. But um, I, I, I learned the error of my ways uh, a little bit as I got, got older. I, I was more disciplined, and by the time I got to Leicester City, I was almost training like a proper professional. <laughs>
0: I was imagining though that to when you weren't training you uh, didn't have much energy to do any hobbies at home but certainly some of the players at the moment are finding some unique ways of filling their time whilst they're waiting for football to start again I noticed former Leicester midfielder Paul Gallagher has been recording uh, songs and uh, playing uh, the guitar yeah. I remember Jack Hobbs telling me when he was at Leicester City that his, his uh, hobby was um, playing snooker. But the problem was, because of sports science has advanced significantly since the days where you were running around the woods and whatever with <laughs> sweatsuits on... Um, He wasn't allowed to stand up for more than an hour. So he could only ever play snooker for an hour and that was it. He had to finish then as well. But uh, I imagine there was uh, loads of uh, players of learning new skills and uh, doing some some strange hobbies. I remember David Beckham used to collect Lego and do Lego, didn't he, when he was at Milan and living on his own. But uh, some of your teammates had um, some unusual hobbies as well, didn't they? Certainly Steve Guppy, because I did a feature about him uh, just before he went to Nashville about his passion for fishing
1: yeah that's right i mean currently a lot of players will be uh developing new hobbies won't they right now i, I, I don't see lego being too popular these days well you never know you never know but uh yeah steve Cuppy was uh what well, still is a mad keen as you know rob fisherman going abroad well not obviously not at the moment but uh well, it, well he is actually at the moment he's over in america is isn't it? he but but he, he would venture near and far to to disappear and go fishing and uh there must be something in the name rob isn't it i suppose i suppose. Uh, that might have inspired him initially but yeah he, he was mad keen on on his, on his angling and uh threatened to go with him a few times never quite got round to it but would be nice it would be nice uh when when things get back to normal hopefully but he's uh you know from memory i can't i can't remember that many that Out of the ordinary hobbies, there there was the standard playing golf, etc. Something that I liked doing since I packed in football, but I didn't like to at the time. The last thing I wanted to do was go around on a course, especially if you're walking, or even on a buggy for four or five hours after a a day's training. It wasn't really conducive to good preparation because uh, I'd become more disciplined by this stage. (laughs) You might have covered Rob after After my uh, earlier days, but um, I mean, players in our day—I remember Graham so used to get castigated for the fact that he read books or did crosswords. It was almost <laughs> frowned upon, wasn't it? Yeah, you had to be football, 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 and uh, more often than not that was the case, or the standard socialising really. But uh, I'm sure that people did have their hobbies. Uh just kept him a little bit quiet, I suppose, because you used to get ridiculed for it if you were slightly out of the norm. <laughs> but, you know, bad, bad as that sounds.
0: Well, apparently Ryan Bennett, who's on loan at Leicester at the moment, is a very talented guitarist and singer as well. So... I suppose your hobby was uh, socialising shall we put it and there's been a few examples of it's not changed really for the modern professionals as well they still like a a night out and even though we're on isolation they shouldn't be doing it we had the example of uh, Jack Grealish and uh, I think Carl Walker had a party as well so it's not a great look at the moment whenever they're advising everybody to to isolate and stay at home but uh, it's uh, not always that easy is it Matt I can imagine you guys broke a few curfews back in the day
1: well yeah I mean it's a little bit of a sensitive subject isn't it um you know in terms of breaking curfews with the situation as it is less serious in our time because it you know, the curfews just applied by the our managers <laughs> and you know rules are there to be broken rob that was the philosophy <laughs> back in the day wasn't it you know it's always always a dangerous thing telling you know 20 young lads who are looking forward to going out on the town, uh, what time they've got to be home. And uh, in fact, Martin O'Neill used to spin it round, a bit of the old Brian Clough scenario, wasn't it? He said, you know, he would say to us, for instance, lads, you can have a night out tonight, but the curfew's two o'clock. You know, the the old adage, anyone who's in before two o'clock is fine a week's wages. So we were like, yes, Gaffer, we like the sound of that. So (laughs) a bit of reverse psychology. And more often than not, that worked. You know, he, he didn't mind us going out socially at the right time. In fact, almost encouraged it. And uh, you know, more often than not, uh, we we didn't let him down. Although that wasn't always the case. I'm, I may have to add um, <laughs> one time in particular. I remember uh, it, it was almost a superstition in, in, before the '97 Cup Final at Wembley against Middlesbrough. In, in the run-up to it, I joined the club myself. Steve Guppy again, (laughs) and Ian Marshall. (laughs) We were all cup-tied, but Martin wanted us to come along to the quarter-final at Ipswich. Uh, So he let us have a night out the night before. Obviously, the rest of the players were all tucked up in bed. So we went and had a few drinks locally, nothing special. They won the game. We did the same against Wimbledon, even in the home game. He made us go out. (laughs) Because of a two-legged tie in the semi-final. And similarly down at Wembley, or down at Burnham Beaches was the hotel we were staying at where England stayed and Martin had known it from his time as a player, etc. I think, I think, again, I think Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest used to stay there semi-regularly when they were having successful periods. And um, so he said to us to go out, he said, but don't take the mickey, but back by 12 o'clock. So we're like, OK, we went out, had a few drinks. Um, started dragging on a bit and before we know, it, it's approaching 12 o'clock and it gets to about half past 12 and Steve Cuppy says, it's not a problem. He said, I've left my window open on, on the bottom floor of the hotel around the back. He said, they won't know what time we're getting in because John Robinson used to wait for us in reception at the hotel and, and check that everyone was in before time. So we crept round the back, tiptoeing o- over the, the, the pebbles and making a little bit of a noise. And we all jumped in the window which we thought was Steve Guppy's room. It turns out it was the wrong room. It was Mike Whitlow's room, who was playing the next day. And he's woken up with a shriek and a scream. That You see these three silhouette figures coming through his window. He thought there was an intruder or a burglar of some sort. So he was up, the light was on, and he was wide-eyed and with, ''Oh, wait, sorry, mate. Sorry to inter- interrupt your preparation.'' He said, ''I can't believe you, free idiot.'' So we jumped back out the window got into Steve Guppy's proper bedroom, got into there, got into our own rooms, got changed into our tracksuits, club tracksuits. went down to reception and pretended we'd been in since 11 o'clock. And John Roberts said, I didn't see you coming up front. No, we've been in early, Robbo. Bit bored, can we come and have a drink with you in the gaffer now? Oh, by all means. As you behaved yourself, little did he know, we'd only just got in about quarter to one. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so that worked quite well for us. We got away with it as well.
0: <laughs> well, this is what... The- This part time is all about, isn't it, uh, telling some great stories and uh, I managed to come across one this week that I I was told at the time. And I'm surprised not many people uh, remember this story. It's about the story of a a waiter that ended up, that uh, met Kunvichai in Nice when he was waiting on his table in a a restaurant and uh, ended up with a contract at Leicester City. You've not heard this story, have you, Matt?
1: No, I don't know how. It, It sounds intriguing.
0: Yeah, it's David Lorenzo. He, he, he played a bit for when he was a bit younger and uh, he had a dream of being a professional footballer and he was at Juventus and Torino, but he got released and uh, he travelled all over Europe and even to the States trying to pursue his dream. But he met a girl, a French girl, and settled down in Nice and he was working as a waiter and uh, a party of his uh, guests came in. And uh, straight away, David uh, decides that he's going to wait on this guy as soon as he finds out he's the chairman of Leicester City. and he's he an opportunity <laughs> there. He abandons uh, his other tables and goes and waits on um, on Vichai's table and gets talking to him. and Tells him he, you know his his dream of being a professional footballer. Next thing you know, four days later, Vichai's invited him over. And he's had a trial at Leicester City and he ends up with a contract to the end of the season to give him time to get fit so he can show what he could do. I mean, I don't think he impressed that many people with his football skills, but certainly it's another example of Vichai's um, generosity of spirit, isn't it? And uh, the fact that he liked uh, to give the underdog a chance. He certainly did that when he uh, bought Leicester City, but uh, it was uh, Vichai's... um, what it would have been his 62nd birthday last Saturday, and uh, it, this story just—we uh, thought we'd tell it again. It's on the Athletic website now, uh, in detail. And I did manage to track down uh, David in—he's uh, in back in Nice now, and uh, still trying to pursue his dream of becoming a professional footballer. But he's 26 now, and realizes <laughs> that the, the clock is ticking. But that's just another great example, isn't it, that uh, Kunvichai, how he used to be so generous in, in terms of his, his nature and his his willingness to give people a chance.
1: Yeah, David Lorenzo. Yeah, still uh, trying to serve as many football club chairmen as he can out there back in Nice uh, to try and get another <laughs> opportunity. But yeah, it does. It does. It, it, it typifies the man, doesn't it? Um, uh so so many words have been said about Convichai. You know, tales that that have been inspirational at times as well. And uh, you know, I've got my own reasons to be so grateful to Convichai. He gave me opportunities as he did David Lorenzo, as he has for hundreds, thousands of other people. And um, not not least, obviously, taking over Leicester City and providing people, you know, with, with some of the best moments of their lives, <laughs> even. You know, and uh, right across the board, he, he had an effect in the And As I say, personally, he gave me the opportunity to go out and work in Thailand for um, a Thai professional Premier League Team out there, Army United, and gave me opportunities when I came back as well, you know, in various capacities. And say, as he has done for numerous people, numerous people. And uh, rightfully, well, he's remembered every day, but particularly on, on poignant occasions like that, uh, uh, which would have been his 62nd 60, 60 birthday at the weekend. And uh, yeah, he, he always gets a tip of the head from me every time I walk past his, his, his uh, portrait in the reception at the King Power. always give him a little nod out of respect and gratitude and uh reflection for him but uh such a, such a terrible tragedy it was that occurred, but what an incredible man he was.
0: Absolutely, Matt. Matt, thank you very much for joining me again on the, another edition of 5,000 to 1. The David Lorenzo story and all these other stories that I've mentioned today, they're all on the Athletic website, so go and check them out. We will be back next week with another 5,000 to 1. The football might not be back, but we'll be back still. So thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you again next time. <music>